I would like to talk about attitude in practice, cultivating a wise and compassionate attitude in practice, and kind of how it relates to clear seeing, okay, understanding, wisdom. So, uh, what, was th- what was said about the Buddha was that he was essentially interested in basically one thing, maybe two things, uh, was understanding the nature of suffering and understanding the nature of liberation from suffering. And the Pali word is dukkha. As Narayan mentioned the other day, um, Pali words can have multiple meanings, and dukkha has many, many, many meanings. Um, and one common one is suffering. Well, there's several others. Um, one is discontent, um, non-peace, anxiety, stress, uh, misery, dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness, not getting what we want, uh, getting what we want and losing it. And this last one I just learned today, looked it up. It's really it's intense, but it's pretty accurate. Um, violated expectations. It's interesting, huh? We call it disappointment or discouragement or despair when our expectations aren't met. Um, that's what I want to talk about a lot tonight, which is the attitude in practice and how when we approach practice with, it, with our typically conditioned attitude that we bring to many things uh, in our everyday life, when we bring that attitude in practice, how it doesn't work for us. You know, it doesn't work for us. It creates a lot of obstacles and challenges that... Um, if we see or if we begin to understand wise attitude, we can begin. To, we can avoid some of these. Uh, we don't have to get uh, mired down in a lot of uh, challenges that come with an unwise attitude in practice. And for most of us, you know, we're we're kind of in a hurry, right? We're all in a hurry to get enlightened or in a hurry to be free of our suffering. And uh, what I'd like to say is that um, if we include in our practice and really emphasize the cultivation of a wise attitude in our practice, that paves the way for much greater ease and facilitates a much quicker learning process in terms of insight and understanding. Okay, so attitude is crucial. Uh, having the, the correct, the wise, or compassionate attitude in one's practice is crucial, whereas if we, we approach things in a very conditioned way, uh, it creates a lot of torment for us, generates a lot of doubt, discouragement, despair, and frustration. It can really undermine our practice and undermine our intentions and effort. So what the Buddha discovered was that uh, awakening, this process of awakening to this understanding of suffering and freedom from suffering, uh, doesn't come about through magic. Okay? It's not about transcending uh, going above and beyond your, your experience or, or getting to some special place. It has much more to do with uh, understanding, wisdom that's earned, that comes through our own effort. It has everything to do with uh, directly inquiring into the nature of our every moment, every day experience. So it's taking up the material of our bodies and our minds, the environment that we live in. In other words, what's happening in the present moment in directly paying attention to it uh, with the intention to learn 
to discover something new. And what the Buddha said was, the cause of our suffering is not seeing clearly. You know, it's not seeing clearly what leads to suffering. Not seeing what works for us and what doesn't. So all of us, I think, would agree that if we look at the learning process, because in many ways that's what we're doing here, is taking up a learning process. We're, we're, we're learning something about our learning process in this practice. Okay, what works for us? What doesn't? What are we bringing to the practice that creates problems for us? You know, what facilitates learning? That's definitely what the Buddha was engaged in for six years in his training, was that he understood that he, was, uh, he didn't understand. He understood that, for one, is that he didn't understand the nature of suffering and freedom. And he spent six years in intensive training and practice um, developing the capacity to learn, to see, to understand. And we all know that when the mind is full of preconceptions, you know, not just learning in terms of insight or dharma, but if in any field that we're in, if our, if our minds are full of preconceptions, we approach a particular problem that we're investigating, we have a particular attitude about it, um, conclusions about it, well, there's not going to be a lot of learning. And that's true in relationship with others. We enter into a relationship with somebody and we're interacting with them. We have all sorts of concepts about who they are, all sorts of judgments about who they are. Well, we're not really cultivating intimacy in there. There's no connection there. There's, there's, There's not a lot of energy or joy in that particular kind of relationship. And also there's no learning. There's no uh, capacity to discover something new. Uh, So what we're doing in this particular practice with our mindfulness practice is developing that capacity to enter into the present moment without preconceptions. In fact, that's the nature of mindfulness, that form of intelligence. I'll say more about that in a little while. So what kinds of attitudes facilitate learning? To me, this is pretty basic in a lot of ways, but we really have to learn how to apply it in our practice, our meditation practice. Uh, Certainly, um, the first attitude, I think, is humility. And I I really believe that everybody in this room has a certain level of humility, or you wouldn't probably come to a meditation center. You might not even take up meditation. Because what humility says to me, anyways, it's not about walking around kind of acting humble, but it's recognizing the fact that we don't know, that we don't have all the answers. That we don't have all the answers. And that relying on just thinking, you know, thinking our way out hasn't really worked that well. I mean, if we could think our way to peace, we'd already be there because we've spent the vast majority of our life thinking, uh, and it hasn't really brought that peace. So recognizing that we don't know, and that we're in this to learn, is so helpful. It's so helpful. Just creates that um, receptive, open spirit of inquiry uh, that we want to cultivate in our practice over and over again, whether we've been practicing one year or 10 years or 20 years doesn't matter. You know, the Buddha talked a lot about the suffering of becoming, you know, of striving or becoming, achieving, attainment, you know, fixing. 
And what we're learning to do is not so much feed that particular attitude in practice, to realize that that attitude of becoming, of trying, you know, of kind of moving, is a movement away from your actual experience into some kind of an ideal. And of course, when we're striving for an ideal, what are we out of touch with? We're out of touch with the actuality of our experience. And we're not able to actually examine the actuality of our experience. And what the Buddha discovered was liberation comes from working with the material of our lives the way it is. The way it is. Not the way it should be. Not the way it could be. Not the way it shouldn't be. But it's actually working with things as they are. And when we begin to wake up, of course, what we encounter is things as they are, but they're not necessarily the way we want them to be. Okay? So we make that discovery as we begin to wake up. And of course, we have to move into a new relationship when we start discovering things that we don't like about ourselves. And this, I'm sure this isn't the first time we've discovered that, as we pay attention. We're paying attention in a very sustained way. So we're beginning to see how frequently these habits of mind come up and how, much, how often the judgments and the, and the doubts and the restlessness and the boredom and all the kind of challenging energies. We're, we're, we're getting a very uh, bird's-eye view of that, very close-up view of exactly uh, what is going on in that mind of ours. And because of the simplicity of the structure and because of the silence and because of the schedule, because of the conditions and the encouragement, um, we're looking in a much more sustained way So recognizing that we don't know is, is crucial. And also recognizing that we can't think our way out of this situation, that we need to develop another approach, a very new approach. Very, very new approach. When I began my practice, pretty much my early 20s, very early 20s, um, quite frankly, I was in really bad shape. Um, don't have to go into the details, but basically I was desperate um, and looking for something. And I had been looking for something for quite some time. And then eventually, you know, through a variety of different traditions and practices, I discovered Vipassana, insight practice. Um, and to me, it was like, certainly there's that feeling like, wow, finally I've arrived. You know, all the struggle. Um, I finally found a new approach that actually made sense and that was practical because that was really important to me, is that it needed to be something I could do, that I could put in practice, not just read about. But one strength I had, for sure, all the, so many obstacles, so many limitations. But one strength I had was, is that I knew I was completely, 100% convinced that I wasn't going to be able to think my way out. I wasn't going to be able to analyze and figure out and think uh, my way to peace. And that was uh, extremely helpful. Because what it did was, is it, it strongly supported my commitment to take this new approach and to take a path where I worked very diligently at developing mindfulness, which is really a different form of intelligence. And for me, it was, a, it was such a... Um, a relief, in a way, to um, 
feel like there was another resource that I could call on. And it was such a simple resource and it was available. But it certainly needed to be practiced so that it would be accessible. And it certainly needed a lot of patience to begin to taste the fruit of exercising that form of intelligence or bringing that into the world of thought, of course. It's not to say that we abandon thinking, but we also want to develop this other form of intelligence because, of course, that has a profound effect on our thinking. So much of our thinking is conditioned. It's habitual. It's, it's um, conditioned by our past. And so it's very difficult to make discoveries through the thinking process alone without some degree of awareness. Because what awareness does with thought is it brings in creativity. That capacity to actually think differently and to think in a way that's actually productive, that can support our growth and transformation and help us um, develop discernment in our lives, which is so crucial, which is, of course, the use of thought, but with awareness rather than just conditioned reactivity. So in formal practice, in meditation practice, and, and actually not just in formal practice, but it, I think it's um, like it's more obvious, I guess, but as practice develops, we begin to see that every situation we're in is a practice situation. And what that means in, in kind of a practical terms in many ways is developing that capacity to be with yourself. You know, we're developing the capacity to be with ourselves under this, this set of conditions. And these set of, this set of conditions is asking a lot of us because we don't have our usual distractions or escapes. I mean, we can do it internally, but a lot of things have been, that we've renounced a lot of things and we are really encountering ourselves in a very direct uh, way. As much as we want to get away from ourselves, uh, when we sit on the cushion, it gets a bit challenging because we have a body that we're sitting with and we're, and we're practicing mindfulness, so we're getting in touch with what's happening. Um, but you know the, the 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 thing about developing that capacity to to be with yourself is to understand that this isn't a, an endurance contest. It may feel like it right at this stage in the practice, but it's not. It's not about putting yourself through the paces or you know out you know just completely challenging yourself, uh, trying to defeat you know the enemy of suffering or something like that. It's not to do. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with getting to know yourself and to begin to see the full range of your experiences. And so much of practice is about shining the light of awareness on areas in our life that we don't like, that we're not happy about, or areas of life that we're confused about or that we're not in touch with, or that we're playing out unconscious patterns and habits. And that's the material that we begin to work with. That's where we're, that's the practice itself, is encountering ourselves, the full range of our experiences, and yet, learning to relate to them in a very different way, relating to them in a way so that we don't have to keep repeating our mistakes or keep repeating um, things that are not working for us, things that are tormenting us. So this capacity to be with oneself means that we encounter our conditioning. And so what we encounter is a lot of 
attitudes that aren't particularly helpful. And certainly, like a frame, we have a framework often for our experiences. In other words, an experience comes up, and we have a framework for receiving that particular experience. And what we're suggesting, of course, is to see if we can meet our experience without a framework in that sense. You know, like bring it, meet it with mindfulness, which is fresh attention that doesn't have preconceptions as a framework. It doesn't have any value judgments based on uh, good or bad. It's not sitting there judging your sleepiness. You know, you think, your thinking might be judging the sleepiness, or it's not judging the restlessness, or it's not judging your doubt. It's not tell, trying to convince you that you should like this place, or you should like the practice, or there shouldn't be any resistance, or none of that. That, that mindfulness doesn't function that way. It simply meets our experience as it is in a very open-hearted, free-of-preconceptions way. So it's not imposing anything on that experience. But we're conditioned, deeply conditioned, not to receive our experiences with that, that degree of freedom. That's why it's a practice and something that does require effort and sustained attention, sustained practice. Often our framework is one based on success and failure. I mean, we, we, we gauge our life, we measure our life, we evaluate our life so often uh, in, within that particular framework. And, and we all know, you know, even though we're conditioned that way to, to think about ourselves in that frame, we also know, we, we, you know, just open the newspaper or read about one tragedy after the next or one person's up and then a year later or, or a day later they're down, you know, below, you know, just in the hell realms. Uh, where they were right at the top of their profession, or the top of the world, or they were admired and loved by millions of people, and now everybody hates them. Uh, success is so slippery. So, so slippery. In the world itself, it's so slippery. In the framework of Dharma practice, it's completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. You are never, ever, this is my viewer opinion, ever going to have a successful sit. Are you disappointed? (laughs) You will never have a successful sit. And you will never fail. That's not, it's not the, it's not the framework for practice. If you're sitting there and you're just going out of your mind restless, that's, you're not failing in practice. You're experiencing very strong restlessness. That's what that means. That's all. You come out of a practice and you are just high as a kite. You've been watching your breath you know, for the whole time and you're just really calm and peaceful. Things are really cooking. You know, this is why you were here. Was that a successful meditation? Absolutely not. It was a meditation where there was sustained attention for a period of time and that bared fruit for you. But when you got off the cushion, you were busy reporting to the teacher how great your experience was and feeling really good about it, and all this other stuff, and then that's gone. So was it a successful experience? No, that's not, it's not the framework. That's not the framework. It, the framework is about inquiry. It's about continually exploring and examining one's experiences. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't fruit in practice. There is, absolutely. It doesn't mean the practice doesn't mature or deepen. Of course it does. It's just that it's not framed by such a trite concept 
of success. Such a, such a relative concept doesn't apply to it. And if we can understand that, and I think that understanding does come out of practice over the, as practice matures and develops, that particular framework drops away. The idea that you had a good sit or a bad sit begins to drop away. You had a sit. And actually, you didn't have a sit. There was a sit. And there was sometimes awareness and sometimes not. Sometimes there's learning, sometimes there's not. So if we can drop that, or at least begin to recognize when we impose that particular framework of success and failure onto the sitting, into our Dharma practice, if we can just actually, actually all we have to do is pay attention and we can see that that will sow the seeds for self-doubt and discouragement. You know, sometimes despair. Oftentimes leads to uh, undermining us and leaving the practice behind, quitting, because we failed. You know, other people have succeeded, but I've failed. But the reality is, is that maybe the framework doesn't match. And what I'm saying is, of course it doesn't. We also do, we also engage in another habit or pattern which conditions our attitude, which is we compare. We habitually compare and we evaluate our experience. And, and we're, we're, in this culture, it's quite obsessive. I don't think it's true in every culture. But in this culture, we're comparing all the time. We compare one sitting to the next. Uh, we compare one walking to the next. Uh, we compare... Um, levels of energy to other levels of energy. We compare um, ourselves to our neighbors. That's a really common phenomena. Uh, quite often we're, when we're involved in a lot of comparing, this is not actually true, but, but actually it isn't true when I think about it. We compare ourselves both in a positive and negative light. I was going to say we mostly compare ourselves to negative. But if someone's wrestling around you, you know, moving, and you just know that they're having an impossible time, and you're sitting there calmly and blissfully, blissfully you know, you've been practicing for a while, it's not a problem. You know, is there any comparing from that mind to the other one? A lot of times what happens, though, is the person in the restless place, the place that is struggling for one reason or another, is, of course, comparing themselves to the neighbor who's sitting quietly and actually thinks their practice is a lot better than mine. That's also, that's also you know, that, that notion of comparing, it's assuming that you actually know what that person's experience is. And that's a very common phenomenon too, uh, making assumptions about the folks that are practicing around you. And uh, being on the end where a lot of this gets revealed to me through the interviews and stuff, um, most of your thoughts are, we re- they're not reliable, put it that way. It's absolutely not reliable. If, we looked, if you looked at the room like I did when I came in, um, you would think that there's a lot of pretty unhappy folks. Uh, and I know that that's not true. You can't make assumptions based on appearance. You know, folks are just where they are. Some happiness, some not. But we compare ourselves. When we sit down at lunch, right, and we look at our food, do we like peek over at our neighbors and kind of compare the amount? Uh, maybe you took less. You feel good about yourself. Uh, maybe you took more and you feel really bad about yourself. You felt really good when you sat down, but then as soon as you started comparing, of course, and evaluating, we then feel really badly, or, or good, depending on what, what side of it we find ourselves in. 
So comparing and evaluating becomes a framework for experience. That good and bad meditation, be mindful of that. That's simply a concept that we're imposing on the experience itself. I don't really follow this particular model, but there is a model called like the progress of insight. It's a Burmese model, Mahasi Sayadaw model, insight. And there's something like 16 stages in this progress of insight. (laughs) Um, So there's these detailed descriptions. And I remembered when he was around and some of his disciples were around, a lot of times that's kind of the framework um, which is being communicated in terms of assessing one's practice. And of course, us yogis who are practicing with them, we we think about that, like, what am I on? Am I the eighth, the ninth, the sixth? No, I'm back at two, um, whatever it might be. Um, but, what, but, but what that does is, of course, it creates this model, which is, again, another framework, which really can create havoc in our minds. When we have this particular model, we read these inspiring stories. Uh, and, and there's this picture about Dharma that's just very inspiring. And oftentimes what it is, it's, it's folks writing books about their experience after they've been practicing for quite some time. And, you know, they have deep, inspiring stories and deep, inspiring experiences. And we're sitting there comparing ourselves to that particular book or that that phrase or that poem or whatever it might be, and we're not there. And for, for many of us, that's not okay. And, of course, that not being okay with that creates problems. creates a lot of judgments about ourselves. But as I started going back to the 16 stages, I think like, if I remember correctly, this is like ancient history for me now, I think like the 12th stage of insight was intense restlessness. Intense restlessness. And this is considered a, really, a pretty deep level of practice, this particular form of restlessness. So whenever you're feeling restless, <laughs> you may be in that 12th stage or 12th step or whatever they would call it. And the reason I'm bringing this up is not to criticize that model because I'm sure they know a lot more than I do. But the fact is that um, you know, if our framework for practice is, you know, it's got to look calm and peaceful and all that, and then we're experiencing restlessness, all of a sudden there's something wrong. And that, that's the whole thing. We keep, keep evaluating our experience and keep imposing this idea that there's something wrong. But maybe there isn't something wrong. Maybe there's just what's happening, and it needs to happen that way. And we just need to learn from it. And we just need to pay attention to it. Because maybe there's something in that, paying attention, that's really important to us. And so often, deep insights come out of paying attention to something that's difficult. Quite often, learning and transformation comes out of finding oneself dealing with difficult conditions, whether it's difficult conditions in the body, difficult conditions in the mind, or difficult conditions in the environment. So, seeing if it's possible to be aware of that habit of evaluating and comparing it will come up. And the, and the key is, is not to slap it down or not to create another idea like, oh, I'm now I'm not supposed to compare. No, it's just to be mindful when we do, so that we don't reinforce it. 
these habits of mind are going to come up. You know, all the attitudes that we've brought from the world and all the reinforcement that we've gotten from the world is going to come into our practice. But now is the time to examine it, to question it, to begin to see, do those attitudes serve us? Is there another approach? And there is, of course. There's a much wiser approach, for sure, that's going to facilitate learning. So, a wise attitude within with Dharma practice, let's say, what's going to facilitate learning? A wise attitude is one where we're beginning to take a look at our experience. We know we don't know. Okay, so our intention in practice, the spirit in which we're practicing is understanding that we don't know. It's not that we don't have any wisdom, but there's more wisdom to come. And we're trying something new, and we're trying to like understand that process, what the path is. That's part of the learning, is understanding the path to liberation. Okay. A wise attitude, of course, is, is having an open-hearted inquiry. You know, one that's not clinging to a particular agenda about how it is supposed to be, or how it should be, or how it shouldn't be. You know, an attitude where we're not imposing demands, that we're not on our backs at every moment, evaluating and comparing and criticizing and judging every movement that we make, or every thought or emotion that we have. Okay. So what we want to do, of course, is cultivate an open-hearted inquiry. And of course, one major um, facilitator you know, something that puts that attitude into practice is, of course, mindfulness, because mindfulness is free of preconceptions. That form of intelligence, when we approach our mindfulness practice with, with a wise attitude, that's what facilitates deep learning. That's what eases the way, paves the way for discovery, for seeing something new. Because if we're cultivating this attitude of, oh yeah, okay, we're going to be we're going to work on being, having an attitude that's more allowing of what the actual experience that we're having is. So be more allowing of the sleepy mind or the restless mind, the boring mind. It's not to say that we don't encounter resistance in working with that, and I'll get to that in a minute. But just reinforcing that sense of, oh yeah, attitude and practice. Let's be, let's be accepting is a tricky word, I think. Sometimes in the English language, accepting means like, you're stuck with it, or you're supposed to like it, or you know. Sometimes I think acceptance um, means, well, this is how it is, and so kind of this is how it's going to be, uh, and and so I prefer using the word allowing. But accepting is fine as long as we don't, um, at least within this particular framework. I think acceptance means allowing. In other words, we're making room for the experience that we're having. You know, we're making room for it. We're not pushing it out. We're not imposing an agenda on it. We're making room for our actual experience. And in that field of dealing with our actual experience, with mindfulness, we can begin to see, what our, see our actual experience, the thing, what we're living with, 
the actuality of what we're living with, we can begin to see into the nature of those experiences, see into the nature of habits. The mind begins to discover some space. You know, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to do to cultivate a more allowing attitude towards oneself, even allowing of all the judgments that we have about ourselves. And we, many of us do. And, but what we want to do, of course, is to cultivate a wise and compassionate attitude to the resistance. We don't want to sit there and judge the resistance, the resistance to the sleepiness, the dullness, to the meditation center, or the teachings, or whatever, the food, or whatever the resistance might be to ourselves or to anything that we're encountering or everything that we're encountering. Okay? We want to make room for that resistance. You know, resistance needs to be met with compassionate awareness, not more self-criticism or not buying into the story of what the resistance is telling us. And so often that's the case too. The resistance can, be, can build a, quite a compelling story about why something is completely inherently flawed. But a lot of that is a story about the experience. In Dharma practice, we're looking at our relationship to the conditions that we're encountering. So, that, so whatever condition we encounter creates an opportunity to learn. If we're looking at how we're relating or responding or reacting, we're learning from anything. Dishwashing, walking through the dining room, tasting food, looking at the bulletin board, going to the bathroom, going to bed. Wherever we're paying attention, whenever we're paying attention to how we're relating to that particular experience, and it's silent attention we're talking about, not sitting back, analyzing, figuring out, trying to break things down. No, it's just observing what we're doing and how we're holding that experience. But we're doing it in a very open, friendly way. That's the attitude. It's not to say that that's how we are doing it, necessarily, but that's the attitude that we want to grow, develop, and strengthen. Because that's the attitude that's going to facilitate real transformation and learning. That's what's going to facilitate insight or seeing things fresh. That's precisely what the meditation practice is designed to do. It's not about having a particular experience. It's about entering and encountering, meeting your experience with the quality of fresh attention so that you can learn from it. So that we don't have to keep repeating. So that we don't have to live our lives in an habitual way. Where where we discover some freedom, where there's some other ways of relating to things. Whether it's people, places, or things. Narayan mentioned a Chan master that she recently studied with, and there was another Chan master that both Narayan and myself uh, spent many years practicing with Sheng Yen. And he was definitely um, an amazing being, an amazing teacher. Um, Different tradition, but it's a different, slightly different method, but essentially exactly the same. And also his attitude and his approach was very, very similar to what we're doing in Vipassana. We learned a lot from him. So in the early days when we were practicing with him, he gave a lot of talks and, and you know, it was as he aged and wasn't so healthy, kind of cut down over the course of time. But I remember when our first few years of practicing with him, he used to give these very long talks, but they were so creative and, and very humorous and, and deep and profound thoughts, teachings. You know, it was tremendous. But he used to, you know, he'd just come to the hall and he'd say, yeah, it, 
Chan retreats are like a vacation. And I would be sitting there the early days and say, hmm, I don't really experience this exactly as a vacation. <laughs> what I know is that uh, I'm sleeping on the floor of a meditation hall with 40 other guys. And I'm crouched like in a corner trying to create a little space. And all night long I'm listening to people yell and talk and snore in their sleep. And I'm getting almost like no sleep at all. And then at 4 o'clock, someone, the wake-up bell, it's not like a gentle chime or alarm clock. It's someone who comes by and smacks really hard this wooden block. Uh, and several times it would be like maybe five feet from my ear. And it really was loud and extremely unpleasant. And immediately aversion arose. And it's 4 o'clock and we go to bed at 10. And we do everything together. Now, one reason I do Vipassana practice is I like a little room and a little space and a little bit of flexibility in terms of, oh yeah, you can watch your breath, you can do this, you can do that. You know, Not in this. You know? It's like everything's together. You eat together, you sleep together, you practice together. Basically, you're almost your entire life is in the meditation hall, at least in the early days. Then they built dorms. Um, but he used to come in and say, you know, John, vacation. Okay, vacation. What, what the heck does he mean by that? Um, you know, and, and he would, of course, elaborate and clarify a little bit anyway. I leave some work for me. Um, but what he was pointing to is that when you don't impose an agenda on your experience, life, life one discovers a great deal of ease in relaxation in one's practice and one's mind that so many of our torments have to do with having, clinging to a particular agenda. That constant reaction, that constant refrain that's going on all the time, saying our body shouldn't hurt, the mind shouldn't be restless, it shouldn't be sleepy, I should be more concentrated, I shouldn't do this, I should be that, I should eat less, I shouldn't eat less, I should love a meditation hall, I hate this place. Uh, there's always the shoulds and the shouldn'ts and always imposing an agenda. We're looking for particular experiences. When we don't get them, we get frustrated. So, to me, that was one of the crucial lessons that I learned from him. Maybe one of the most important, if not the most important, was attitude and practice. Be allowing. Be yourself. But just keep paying attention. You know, it's not a trying to fix yourself practice. It's try to learn. And, and what the Buddha said was it's through understanding that we're liberated. It's through seeing through our ignorance. It's seeing what works, what doesn't, what leads to peace and what doesn't. And that takes looking at our actual experience. It's not looking at somebody else's experience. It's not looking at an experience that you're not having. It's about looking at the experience that you are having, but approaching it you know, with this open-hearted attention and nurturing that, strengthening that. The wonderful thing about mindfulness The wonderful thing about mindfulness 
is that it's not bound by the past. It's not bound by the past. In other words, we, through mindfulness practice, we actually develop the capacity to relate to the present moment. To relate to the present moment. To be in the present moment. To be connected to the present moment. To be with our experience. Whatever it is. Whatever activity we're engaged in. Whatever emotion we're experiencing. Whatever mood we're experiencing. Whatever person that we're encountering or discussing or talking with or interacting with. Developing that capacity to be there. Fully. Our thinking doesn't allow that so often. You know, our thinking is limited by our history, by our past, or by our conditioning. It doesn't have to be. But so often our thinking is that. It's, it's colored by bias, for sure. I see that in my mind all the time, making these judgments about other people based on history, culture. Ideas, expectations, whatever it might be. You know, it's challenging to meet another human being uh, with fresh attention, where there's real connection, where there's some openness uh, to listening and receiving and speaking directly about what your actual experience is. In other words, to be honest. Ryan talks about integrity. That's what integrity is. It's being in touch with the now. But it doesn't come easy. Not for most of us. It didn't come easy to Shenyan. Many stories about encountering I mean, tremendously dedicated, I mean, beyond belief dedicated. I mean, I mean, I used to be like, you know, I look at myself and I go, oh my God, you know, like, you know, comparing mind again, right? I used to do that with him. I compare myself to him and I think, oh boy, I got a long way to go. Um, Fortunately, I didn't get too stuck in that. Um, it was true. It was way beyond me, for sure, in understanding. Uh, but, you know, his path and my path. It's difficult. We encounter a lot of challenges along the way. And so it's crucial to begin to understand what wise effort is in practice. Hmm. Very brief. Description of wise effort. Um, so, wise effort. What we want to do is incorporate the mindfulness. That's what, what essentially what wise effort right now in this particular context is, is to be mindful of your experience. Is to keep coming back to the present moment. Work with the method. And keep coming back to the here and now. The quality of effort is gentle. Okay, we keep, hopefully we keep highlighting that or emphasizing the fact that we're not encouraging a striving or endurance or a push uh, or trying to achieve something on the cushion. You know, it's gentle. We're learning to relax and nurture certain qualities that allow us to settle and be in the present more with greater ease. So it's a gentle quality, but of course we've also been talking about perseverance, putting that effort and so it's very important to understand, and this to me is a process of inquiry also, because everyone's different. 
we talk about wise effort and practice, every individual is different in terms of what that means in context of their life or in context with what we're working with in the present moment. But what the Buddha described wise effort was is it's a balanced effort. And I think this is, a, this is a helpful tip in a way in terms of when we're practicing, we should be checking in periodically with the kind of effort that we're making in practice. Are we pushing or striving, uh, which is often based on a lot of judging or having a particular agenda? Um, are we feeling particularly discouraged and so we're just indulging in a lot of fantasy because the time is going by faster and nobody knows we're doing it? Uh, so we just kind of go with the fantasies? Or are we working with fantasies as a mindfulness object? Okay, which is what we want to do. That's what wise effort is. So it's gentle but persevering. And the Buddha described it as, uh, that finding that balance uh, as tuning the strings of a lute. Okay? Stringed instrument of a lute. Sort of an ancient guitar, right? If the strings are too loose, you know, really, you're not really going to be able to make music out of that. If they're too tight, it's too painful to play. It hurts too much. And so it's tuning those strings, finding that balance, you know, finding that balance. So if we're sitting in agony, you know, it's maybe sitting in a chair, giving yourself a break. If you move every time there's a tiny bit of discomfort in the body, you know, maybe we need to just sit with it a little bit longer for a few moments, take a look at it, look at the fear, the reaction that's coming up. <clears throat> so it's finding that balance always and in understanding that. So it's a gentle you know, quality to it, but it's also showing up. It's both being gentle but showing up for the present moment, showing up for the schedule, showing up for yourself. In other words, putting an effort to be awake, you know, to be attentive. I'll say one thing about effort. Certainly at the beginning of a retreat, early in the retreat, it takes a great deal of effort. It's not to say that it's, you know, I'm not trying to set up an expectation that that's going to change. Maybe it will take a great deal of effort throughout the retreat. But what I would say is with the mindfulness practice, it does often take a certain kind of effort that is really stretching and extending. But what, what develops in practice is that as mindfulness gets stronger, as we practice it, as we establish that intention to practice it and to, and to put it, to, rem- to remember to keep coming back to the present moment and be mindful, what happens is that <clears throat> uh, it becomes a resource. It's like we don't really have to practice thinking, right? You got that one down, right? All you have to do is sit there. You don't have to really work. It doesn't take a lot of effort. In fact, it takes no effort at all. We, we are going to think. Okay, that's a form of intelligence. Mindfulness, because we're just nurturing a new form of intelligence, we're taking a new approach. It's, it's quite weak for us in some ways. It's, it's like we're, we're establishing a new skill, and it's a very different kind of skill because we've been spending our entire life thinking, and now we're asking something a lot from us. We're asking to develop a whole other kind of intelligence um, that's certainly compatible with thinking, but it is different. The qualities are different. Um, so obviously it requires patience for sure. Um, and I just lost the train of thought. Where was I going? Because I'm going to wrap up. Where was I going with that? 
patience, no. Something about mindfulness. <laughs> anyway, it's gone. Back in the present moment, and it's not there. <laughs> Definitely not there. Uh, it's not coming back, I don't think, either. So why don't we stop? I've run out of time anyway. Um, all I want to say, I guess, to finish is it's, it's more than worth the effort that you're putting in. Oh, and I do remember it. That becomes a resource that we can call on if we practice. You know, becomes accessible to us. So we can call on it at times when we really need it. Very useful. Okay, let's just sit for a minute. So, being mindful as we stand up, bringing that quality of fresh attention. It's a new moment in your life right now. It might be a tired moment, but it's a new moment. So getting up and moving the body into a standing position and making your way out of the hall for a walking, and then there'll be a final sit for tonight. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.